This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. And that's what took us from, you know, a complete startup to a $100 million brand 10 years later. You need to maintain a really great product quality. There's those brands that rise and fall really quickly, especially in the social media age, because they just produce really subpar products and you a brand is sustained over a long period of time because they produce things that people want to come back and buy and they you know they build that trust with their community and mm-hmm. that's what we did at Frank mm-hmm. you know we're we've launched from gone from one SKU to now you know 30 40 different SKUs and people move across the SKUs and they come back and they purchase the things that they like they're coming back to purchase us and it creates that trust on the frankbody.com and then with all of the retail partners that we've um, gone with over time hey guys just before we head into the episode if you have been enjoying the podcast please make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're using whether you're using spotify apple youtube Whatever it is that you're using, please make sure you hit the subscribe button. Uh, it really does help us out a lot. Um, it obviously means more people will be able to see and trust our content. It also means that you'll get that content every week. And, you know, we really do appreciate all the support, all the shares, all the likes, all the comments, all the messages that we get. Um, it does help us and, and spurs us on to keep providing more value and, and deliver, you know, quality content to you guys. So a massive thank you. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Really excited about this one. Um, as I mentioned before, so you're the founder of, of Frank Bod and also Willow and Blake. Um, big fan of Willow and Blake's work uh, from a you know from a business nut, you know, and, and someone who loves branding and and how the depths he can go to, but also someone who seen Frank Bod from in its early days, you know, and and how it became almost an it thing, you know, on social media at the point, and and you know now going back and doing my research now and and just seeing how far it's actually come I was saying to you before like I didn't realize you know that that you know because you kind of obviously see the brand and you see the brand grow but you don't understand the level that it goes to but super excited for this one and and um you know really pumped to share the story and and kind of talk the story but also some of the lessons yeah I love sharing the lessons so (laughs) dive into all of that yeah um we might start there. So I'd love to hear the startup story around Frank Bod, but also Willow and Blake as well, because I know Willow and Blake came first. So I'd love to dive into that to start. Yeah, the story of Willow actually really sets the tone for how Frank Body came to be. So I am a copywriter by trade, and I started Willow and Blake with two of my best friends when I was maybe 20 two-ish. We started it as a blog. We just wanted a place to write. Um, It just so happens that my two closest girlfriends at the time were also writers. And we wanted to tell very much like what you're doing now. We wanted to tell the story of the people behind the idea. Um, Mm. Podcast wasn't really a format then. So we were just doing written interviews. Uh, And it, it picked up a lot of traction. I think people really liked the kind of no BS approach to the way that we wrote and it wasn't edited to within an inch of its life for Mm -hmm. advertisers. It was really just us telling the story we wanted to tell. And we were all dabbling in social and marketing and PR in our jobs and started to integrate that into what we were doing at Willow and Blake. And Willow built up quite a reputation for itself and we eventually turned it into a business about two years later and it was a copywriting business. 
at the time there were design agencies and press agencies, but nobody actually focusing on the written word, which in our opinion was such, such a key part of building a great brand or a great campaign. Mm. So we wanted to try and close this gap in the market. So we launched Willow and Blake, the copywriting agency in our pyjamas from our house, like absolutely no idea what we were doing. Beautiful. Maybe 23 years old. I think like you, when you launched your consulting business, you know, you're so young at the time and you don't know what you're doing. Um, but I think that naivety kind of helped us. You need it. You need it. We had <laughs> no preconceived notions of the way to run a business. We just sort of did what we thought was right and hit up all of our contacts and offered to do work for free um, to really just build a folio and get our name out there. And we launched a campaign for a friend of ours who just imported 20,000 plastic shoes from China, which at the now you may know as the jelly bean sandal. Mm-hmm. So we helped relaunch that product and that went absolutely bananas and you sold out of all of the stock and we thought oh we we know what we're doing we know how to do this and decided to quit our jobs and focus on Willow and Blake full-time and that eventually grew into a full-service branding agency over the course of the next 12 years so we do everything from um, you know entire brand development naming visual identity all the way through to rollout and then campaign management for some really big clients throughout Australia and the U.S. We were doing that for a few years and people came to us because they knew they were going to get a refreshing view and a, I guess a, an out-of-the-box way of approaching how to create a brand and a voice that was really different to something that existed mm-hmm. in the market. It's always been a big focus of Willow. You know, the design is beautiful, but that message and voice is what's going to cut through and we wanted to stand out from the crowd. And a lot of clients would come to us wanting to do that and then when they saw it, they were a little bit scared and it was starting to become a frustration point of ours. You know, we knew we were creating great brands that then got watered down because you were dealing with someone who wasn't quite ready to commit to such mm. a new and bold idea. And we thought, well, if we – what could we do if we just did this for ourselves? And at the time, we were chatting with a couple of people about potentially producing something, a product in the health and wellness space and – using e-commerce and looking at how we could potentially market something through Instagram because Instagram was brand new and there were no brands playing on there at the time. Mm. And the, all these sort of things came to a head. So we've got e-com, we've got social, we've got people who know how to do branding. How can we bring this to, together and create a product that we can launch? And that was where Frank Body was born. So one of my co-founders, Steve, um, we always joke that he likes to make money out of coffee every way he possibly can. <laughs> he had some cafes at the time and, um, you know, learned the different ways that people would come and ask to use the leftover grinds. You know, they'd make body products with them at home or they'd use it for garden fertilizer. And he kept coming back to this idea of the coffee scrub. And so we just basically made up a recipe with things that we had in the kitchen. And the product was really, really good. Um, it it acted like nothing that we had tried in the supermarket before and there wasn't really a big focus on body care. It was mm. all like natural body care. It was all that sort of fluff and gel and synthetic fragrances and we, we could see a really big shift towards people caring about what they put on their body in the way that they did what they put in their body. Mm. So we launched this stuff that looked like dirt in a bag back in 2013 and created, you know, what I think was quite a, you know, a new and memorable brand and memorable voice and had absolutely no idea what we were getting ourselves into and now a decade later here we are with teams all over the world and no sleep and all that jazz (laughs) so that was how it started that is a true that is the epitome of a startup story in my opinion I I kind of think about that and and just think about 
I mean, as I said, looking back now and, and kind of seeing it all happen, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, I want to come back to, I guess, Willow and Blake, because something that you mentioned, which I think can often be one of the things that stops people in their, in their path when it comes to business, like you guys talked about, you had a really great opportunity come, you know, come to you guys around um, uh, the jelly bean sandal and, you know, Obviously, there's that naivety that we talked about, but I guess, could you touch on what advice you would give to, say, founders or new business owners to taking that opportunity? Because I think that's the thing that I look at is like, you know, we're getting opportunities come on our desk now and I'm the same. I'm like, yep, let's do it because I, I now know that that's how you've got to do it. You've got to just grab that opportunity and back yourself in that no matter what happens, no matter how tough it gets, no matter how confused you are, you've got to really take it and back yourself in and, and, and really go for it. So how do, what, what's your advice to someone that is maybe getting this opportunity and they might be passing it up or you know, if that opportunity comes to them, what should they do, right? What, what yeah. do you think they should do? Just stop thinking about it. Thinking kills opportunity. And it doesn't mean that you don't be prepared or mm. have some kind of way of analysing risk. But the more you think about something, the more reasons you're going to come up with not to do it. And then you never take these opportunities when they arise. We just, we didn't even think about it. We jumped at this opportunity. Well, I mean, we badgered him. We knew he'd imported all these shoes and we thought, well, we can do this for you. Let us do this for you. Um, we did it at such a cheap rate. It, not to say that you shouldn't put value on what you do, but I think when you're really trying to start something, just remove as many barriers as you possibly can. Mm, so it's not about the version of the business that you want to exist in 10 years. It's about the version of the business that exists right now. And in our case, there was no business. It was literally an idea. We thought we might be able to do this for people. So the more practice that we got, the better we'd get at it and we could build a reputation in market. So just, it's always my advice, like just do the stuff, just do it, take the opportunity. If it goes wrong, you're always going to learn something from it. In most cases, touch wood for everyone listening, like the world isn't going to blow up around you if it doesn't quite work out um, and put some strategies in place that minimise the risk. Just get it done otherwise. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think um, what you mentioned around price as well, like you, I think especially early on you need to do it for the experience, you know, especially – we can talk now about processes, systems and stuff like that. But when you're in those moments, you don't have that stuff. And the only way you can truly create that stuff, like you might be able to write out a process or, you know, um, mind map a process, but you don't truly understand what can tear you down <laughs> until you're in it, yeah. until you experience it. And I think that's really important. Um, and especially initially, like it's the whole um, under promise over deliver as well. Like I think that's a big thing when you first start is like if you want to build a brand, like just go and crush it for someone, you know, like when you get that opportunity, go in, go all in, put everything you possibly can and just try to do the best job you possibly can. That is exactly right. I've, we live by the motto, under promise and over deliver. There are a lot of agencies out there that will just say yes to everything that comes their way. And we are not like that at Willow and Blake. We know our capabilities and we will only agree to things that we can actually do. I will never take someone's money and then try and problem solve it in the back mm. end. I have such an ethical issue with mm. people doing that. Um, and so Willow still exists today. So, you know, we have great opportunities that come our way and we have to decline them sometimes because we think that there might be people who are better subject matter experts and we'll refer our potential clients over there so I think um, 
there's that element of like seizing the right opportunities when they come along as well and don't dig yourself a hole that you're not going to be able to get out of. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Uh, and, and there was just one other thing. I know that this is kind of maybe stalling it a little bit, but I think there was another really important um, topic that I'd love you to talk on is quitting jobs, mm. right? Because that is the age-old question. When do we quit? When, you know, we've got a startup, we've got a side hustle. When do we quit? When do we, when do we take the step? When do we take the leap? Do you want to, I guess, uh, maybe give us a little bit more on that? Because yeah. I know at the time, like, it sounds like you guys were quite young and, and it was like, and you can take those risks then, but was there like a, was there a reason that you made the decision then and there? Like what was, how did you kind of get to that decision? Yeah, it's a, it's a really layered question isn't it because it's so different depending on each individual circumstance and the younger you are generally the less responsibility you have you know me now with the mortgage and a family it would be really different to just quit my job versus me 15 years ago um but if it makes anyone listening feel better we had no savings and no clue so like there's no I don't think there's necessarily a right time for us it kind of the conversation arose we were all in this scenario where we were working for small businesses, working quite close to the founders and learning a lot from them. And every, each of us kind of coming to the realisation at different points in time that we didn't want to work for those people anymore. We wanted to be them. You know, they almost did their job too well of inspiring us. And we yeah. thought, well, that's great. I don't it's want always to the case, work for huh? you anymore. I want to go do my own thing. Um, so we wrapped up some projects that we were working on and quit our jobs and we didn't really have anything in place we knew that if shit really hit the fan we could go and get another job and even if that job was not in our field that we loved anything to pay the bills um but there was an element of so much was on the line because there was no money in the bank and we had rent coming up later that month well mate you gotta hustle and make this work (laughs) or you're not gonna be able to eat or pay your rent so I kind of liked that hunger and not having such a safety net because it made us work really really hard to achieve what we did and we had no funding and you know we were really lucky we had supportive families but none of us were taking any money or anything like that from our families I'm sure they wouldn't have let us end up on the street but it was you know it was really up to us to achieve what we wanted so there's no right time to quit other than now (laughs) yeah and that's so true like um so I, I actually just went through that, you know, well, my partner did. So um, we've been together for, what, five or six years and she's come up um, through digital marketing and, and worked at a really successful company, helped them grow, was the head of their marketing department. Um, and, you know, it was kind of like this decision of like, okay, when like, we knew what we wanted to do, we knew we wanted knew we have this business. We're also start, just started a media agency. So similar thing, like wanting to get into branding and, and um production as well and kind of creating this solution just around content because that's what we do really well um and you know like her expertise where I've come from our network it kind of just seemed like a great idea at the time and it was like okay well you know we're probably gonna have kids soon we're probably gonna get married soon and there's probably gonna be all these things coming up it's like well if not now then when yeah yeah and it was kind of like okay same thing like we cut our household income you know from the wage I pay myself out of the, out of uh, the company to her wage and you know down by like nearly 80 grand a year yeah. right so so like right now it's we're in that moment you know we're working extremely hard but 
we're doing it because we don't really have a choice, um, but we also don't have the responsibilities that we know are going to come in the future just yet. So I think that was really, you know, you put it really well of like it's up to the individual to, I guess, make analysis on their situation and say, okay, like, you know, am I in a position to do this? Is this the right time? Um, and I know we say, you know, you just said it, like the time is now, like it's it's always now, um, unless you do have, say, some other you know, responsibilities like children and a partner and these kind of things to think about. So that's a really good point because I feel like that's something that's not talked about a lot. So we'll dive back into the story now. So I'd love to hear about the start of Frank Bod and obviously you guys have created the product. Um, I might even We might even go into like what were some of the things that you guys did early on that had a massive impact on growth? Mm. You know, like what were some of the, the initial things maybe in the first three years that were like, oh, this is this is what we need to go, you know, we need to kind of lean into. Yeah, there's a couple of key things. I always separate it into brand and product. So when I talk about brand, there are it's a really different landscape now. So we launched nearly ten years ago and our major competitors then were the big legacy brands, mm. you know, all the brands sitting under L'Oreal, Estee Lauder. You know those types of conglomerates. Ecom wasn't a thing then, was it? Ecom wasn't really a thing. I mean, yeah. there were still people around. Adore Beauty existed then, and they they do an absolutely fantastic job. Um, but there wasn't. We couldn't identify very many brands that were created for a youth audience by the people who were actually going to be using the product. You know, mm. most of the beauty brands that I used were owned by sixty-year-old white men. Who, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, but they, they no, don't know what it's like to it's be a twenty-five-year-old woman. Yeah. Um, so we we wanted to cut through a lot of the crap and a lot of the jargon that dominated the industry. So producing a brand that people could actually emotionally connect with and wanting the, there was a community around the brand and. We wanted to create a product that people actually wanted to talk about and share and that, you know, that virality didn't exist in the beauty landscape. People were not taking photos of their beauty products and sharing them online. This was something that we and a handful of other startups at the time created. For us, it made sense. We were going to use Instagram because we had no money to market anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to come into this platform. We're not going to talk like a corporate company. We're going to talk like your friend. And that's where the character of Frank came from mm -hmm. because he was playing in a space that was dominated by peer-to-peer -peer communication. So you've got the character of Frank, you've got the product, and now we need to kind of build a way of getting people to talk about the product. So that was very manufactured. It was – there was an element of luck that people took it up, but – we really encouraged that. So myself and Eri and Bree were taking photos of our legs covered in coffee scrub all the time to try and start showing the behaviour that we wanted our consumers to emulate. Mm -hmm. And then with every product that was sold, a flyer went out, literally step-by-step -step instructioning people how to take a selfie and put it online because now, commonplace, 10 years ago, you just didn't do no, it. No, no, no. So it was really purposeful. We knew that word of mouth was going to be what built our brand and – you can't just expect word of mouth to happen. Word of mm. mouth is generally manufactured. And then once it sort of gets going, the kind of the steamroll effect happens and it builds on itself. So that was a huge component of what made us successful. And the other one is a product that actually worked. Mm. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, you need to maintain a really great product quality. There's those brands that rise and fall really quickly, especially in the social media age, because they just produce really subpar products and you a brand is sustained over a long period of time because they produce things that people want to come back and buy and they 
you know, they build that trust with their community and mm-hmm. that's what we did at Frank. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we've launched from, gone from one SKU to now, you know, 30, 40 different SKUs and people move across the SKUs and they come back and they purchase the things that they like and that's what took us from, you know, a complete startup to a $100 million brand 10 years later because they're coming back to purchase us and it creates that trust on the frankbody.com and then with all of the retail partners that we've um, gone with over time. Um, the third one I would say was looking at our weaknesses. So for us, the biggest weakness that we could see was that we could be one of those fad brands. We knew we had a great community and a great product, but we were seeing so many companies rise and fall. Mm. So the way to try and mitigate that was to partner with really, really credible people in the beauty space. So that was why we launched in Mecca in Australia. It wasn't necessarily about growing sales. It was about looking at brand equity, you know, we didn't want to be an Instagram brand and that was the conversation driving a lot of these type of interviews. They were talking to me a lot about our social media strategy and it kept dawning on me. I'm like, we're not a content brand. We're not a social media brand. We are a beauty brand, but people keep wanting to talk about social rather than the product. So we've got, we've got to correct this. Yes, that's great because we are really good at what we do from a content lens and on social, but that's not what actually we are Mm. so how do we get people to see us differently and particularly you know the eye in the eyes of the media here in Australia we could see that they were not necessarily taking us seriously Mm. for our core product and our core business model so moving into places like Mecca were very strategic to not only drive business growth but really change the way people perceived the brand and sort of leave the the Instagram brand um, story behind and in the past and I think we did that successfully yeah, that's so interesting um, and it makes a lot of sense. Like I often, I mean, I'm pretty lucky that I get to talk to a lot of different brands and I think that brand equity piece is almost, it's a big piece to the puzzle, I think, that sits between startup and scale, mm-hmm. right? Because like, you know, that, that's just that's the pattern that I, I'm recognising, you know, even just from this conversation and tying a few other things together, but it's it does sit between startup and scale because you have to, you have to earn the respect um, beyond just the social media side of it. And you can, I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is you can leverage other brands and connect with other brands through association. Um, and that can that can kind of, um, like, you know, I'll use an example like Harley um, from South Street, you mm-hmm. know, having a, sh- a, a shop in Chadston, you know, like there's a reason she chose Chadston, if that makes sense. And that's kind of like the... I, I see a lot of that happening now. She just did Paris Fashion Week and yep. so on. And, and it kind of resonates with some of the stuff that you're saying of like, oh, we've had this initial exce- success and a lot of that is around getting attention, but now we need respect. Exactly. Uh, and we need to change the kind of perception uh, or the association that, you know, the, the customer has um, uh, around our, our brand. So I think that's really, really interesting. I want to come back to the first point around you mentioned emotion and, and really kind to be able to create a connection and a community um, with your, your customer. Um, and obviously something that sticks out is the, the tone of voice and so some of the stuff that you guys did early on. Are you able to dive into that, I guess? Because I feel like branding can of, often just get caught in the weeds with design. And you mentioned that earlier. Um, and I guess talk about how you guys started to weave. What were some of the tactics and strategies you used to create that emotional response, not just that visual response? Yes. Yeah, so when you think about the products that we create, Frank Body, 
you know, their products are used in the bathroom, predominantly in the shower, and mm. most people are naked when they shower. Mm-hmm. And they're products that you're putting all over your body. It's one of the most intimate experiences you can actually have with a brand. And if you just break it down and think about the, you know, the situation that people are using your products in, it's baffles me that it wasn't already part of the vernacular within the beauty industry to talk to people in the way that we do mm. and acknowledge the fact that they're in one of their most vulnerable states when they're using their product. And for a lot of women, unfortunately, they are trying to combat some kind of perceived wrongness with their body, you know, that they're, they're not happy with something. And it was very it was very cold and very corporate, this the whole space that we were dealing with. And I was feeling disconnected from all the products that I was buying. And I thought, well, if I'm feeling this way, the chances are most other women or most other consumers of our product are feeling this way too. Mm. So can we bring a little bit of fun and a little bit of warmth into this space? And Mm -hmm. that was where that cheeky character came from. You know, there's a lot of innuendo in the Frank Body brand, but for good reason, because you are naked, as I said, when you're using the product. It's not like I'm trying to sell you a car or a Chico roll with mm. a naked woman sprawled across the front of the bonnet. You know, it's that's completely unnecessary yeah. sexualized marketing. This is about empowering the woman who is predominantly our customer and making her feel liberated and seen because we're always desexualized as women and it's, there's always there was always so much shame around that. And you would have seen this over the last ten years. That that space has just opened up opened so up, much yeah. for healthy conversation. The conversations we always have with our girlfriends are now actually taking place front and center, and it's just as it should be. But it needed um, it needed the customer to come along and actually be the people in charge of the brand for that to change. Um, and you know we knew that it was working because our customers were emulating the tone of voice and the content online so we thought this is really resonating with them it's what they want to see from the brands that are becoming part of their life and you know we choose products and we choose brands because they represent a part of us that we want to show to the world so every part of what you're wearing and what I'm wearing is building the identity that I want mm-hmm. other people to see me as and it's no different to the things that we curate in the rest of our lives um, and social was allowing people to, you know, sh- showcase that. Um, and so for us, building a brand that they were really proud to be the part of the community of and then talk to other people about just made so much personal sense and so much business sense. Mm, I think it really talks to the fact that like a niche is not necessarily demographics, but actually more psychology. Yeah. You know, like you, you can yeah, like identify demographics and that's an element of niche, but what's really important is understanding the psyche and and the psychology and then transferring that across to like brand building and, you know, trying to identify what's the, you know, even product as well, you know, like what's the core reason that our product actually exists, you know, not necessarily because we're trying to exfoliate or or improve our skin, but, but actually what does it mean on a psychological level and then how that feeds into branding and some of the things that you talked about, like tone of voice, like the way you talk to your customer. And, and I think, you know, you guys were just obviously really, really good at identifying all that stuff from the beginning, obviously, because it was your skill set and you'd done a lot of work in that area. But um, I think that's a huge lesson and takeaway. Um, for the listener at home, you know, to, to not just think about what their feed looks like and 
and all this the kind of visual stuff but actually the emotional and the psychology and really understanding the customer i guess just a quick one like what kind of research did you do around customer back then like because obviously was there research was it like were you kind of collecting information were you more just talking to customers like how did you kind of come to that that point or was was it just something that you guys were able to identify based on everything that was happening around you more the latter um having had willow and blake for a few years at that point it was just ongoing field research you know Mm -hmm. we were seeing this in passing and we were kind of building up a bit of a profile of what this customer was looking for and with frank in particular we were the customer so we knew her inside out we had three different versions at the helm of the company so that helped um but beyond launch it became very much about that ongoing collection of data from our customers so that's always happening through you know qual and con different types of research and it might be that our cs team are literally on the phone to customers asking them why they haven't come back to purchase in 90 days or they're completing a quiz for us so it's just never resting on your laurels and thinking that you know the customer inside out is the key key to success yeah and and something you mentioned then is like it's you know like i mean oft obviously there's there's channels to get get that information like surveys and the real obvious stuff but it sounds like you guys actually looked at things beyond that you know like data points and and kind of looked at the company and the business and and actually started to i guess make analysis on some of the thing some of the data points that you already had there right like it's not necessarily just reaching out to the customer and and having conversations and that's the start of it like that's really important but there's also stuff going on within your business that you can look at from a data perspective that will give you more information than what you need and I feel like we often just revert to surveys and and this kind of stuff and although that's important you can you can read between the lines a little bit with some of the stuff that's going on internally and and do some really internal analysis and get some really good insights there as well yes never ever rely on customer surveys to make a decision because people always answer questions in the way that they would like to be seen as opposed to the <laughs> yeah. way that they actually are so we measure against you know if especially if you're working at e-com there are so many data points that you're gathering on an hourly basis mm. you you can build a really comprehensive customer profile through that and then look at that alongside the answers that you get from things like surveys with your customers and you'll find somewhere in the middle is the actual answer um now, like when we're working on clients at Willow and Blake, there is a lot of research that goes into building our customer profiles and our strategies. But we also still like to take a no bullshit approach. There's a lot of agencies out there that will build you brand triangles upon brand triangles that are completely useless and so full of, you know, egotistical one-liners from some strategist somewhere and it's just not the way that we work you know we we really deliberately chose the people that work at willow and blake because they are such great creative and strategic thinkers but they take a no bullshit approach to what they do and they're going to actually come up with something very simple and straightforward that's very effective that the clients can then take and run with rather than they look back at this document three years later and don't understand what it was that we were talking about at the time um so i think for as much data as you can collect, you know, the sometimes the most obvious answer is the right one. Yeah, oh, it's so true. It's so true. Like, and I think you realise that, like, once you do the surveys and you look at the answers and you do that kind of that stuff. And I think it also talks to the fact of, 
you know, potentially what we'll talk about is like scaling a business as well. And, and you just mentioned it, like the ability to think deeply about something but create something simple and effective. I think that's the true, I guess, true essence of someone who is creative is they can take this really complicated um, you know, thing that's a business and create this really a simple and effective strategy. And I think that's really the goal is like we've got this big mumbled up thing over here and then we just want to layer it out. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is what we represent. Yeah. Um, but I want to come back to scaling. Mm-hmm. Okay, because that's going to like I think th- there's a few things that I picked up on that I find really interesting and it sounds like you guys did a lot of cross-selling um, in the business to kind of, I maybe explore and experiment and, and, and again, I guess, get more of those data points and you focused heavily on repeat purchase as well and trying to build that relationship to the customer where they keep coming back. It's not that one purchase. And I think inevitably that is what scales a business is how do we get customers that kind of keep coming back to us? Because, you know, people don't, like, I think this is the one thing that I've realised with brands is that we don't make decisions on the best brand we make decisions on the least disastrous and that's why we keep going back to them you know and and we all buy from like three or four companies you know like like if we were to look at our purchases I reckon 70 to 80 percent would come from the same three or four businesses so um I'd love for you to I guess touch more on what took Frank uh, and even you know Willow and Blake because I feel like there's a a heavy connection in the thought process right like obviously you've got Willow and Blake which is an agency and you guys focus heavily on getting the right people on the bus. Um, but then also, you know, cause that's a big part of scaling, but also talk about, you know, um, how you guys expanded product, uh, and, and, you know, how you basically took Frank Bod from, um, you know, this initial product, this, this thing that obviously took off and how it expanded beyond that. Yeah. It's really so different scaling an agency and a product business. So I'm glad that you asked that question. At Willow and Blake, it was a very slow process to scale and it took the back seat to Frank Body for a long time, if I'm being perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that it was taking the back seat was the number one step to being able to scale properly. So we brought on a new partner who acted as general manager and business development manager. And he was such a champion for the brand when we couldn't always be there. Now we've found a much better split between how we divide our time between yeah, the companies. Course. So he was key to then... Um, nurturing the talent and the talent are what make Willow and Blake what it is. You know, they're such great, such great brand thinkers Um, and being very particular with the type of clients that we wanted to work with. We don't work with everyone and anyone. We work specifically with startup brands and a lot of the time in the DTC space Mm -hmm. and challenger brands. So brands that, you know, really want to push the envelope and do something different to what their competitors mm-hmm. are doing. That's our niche. It's still a really big niche. And we work with those type of companies all over the world. But I'm not going to sit here and just produce some crappy run-of-the-mill advertising campaign that any other agency would do. We want to produce things that are really interesting and thought-provoking and we want to work with clients that do that. So, you know, being very deliberate and distinctive in who we want to work with mm-hmm. was the key to scale and then putting the right people in place to do that. Um, at Frank, oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is this would have been an absolute. I mean, just a, a roller coaster. Yeah, roller coaster is right. Because I was just about to say, it's there's nothing linear about the way that Frank scaled. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to jump all over the place here. There, okay, product was key. 
So we launched with the original coffee scrub and it is a fantastic product, but it's not a grudge purchase by any means. No one needs to use a coffee scrub every single day. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that they'd buy and kind of dabble with a little bit. So we wanted to create a routine that was very much part of her daily beauty routine. So, Mm -hmm. you know, cleansers and moisturizers and things that we all do every single day, deodorants, body Mm -hmm. washes. So we built that product portfolio out over the course of a decade. And then part of the strategy was, okay, we've got the product. Now, where is she shopping for that product? I'm not just going to keep shoving a square peg in a round hole. She's not necessarily buying her deodorant and her body wash online. She's probably buying them in a retail setting as she remembers that she's about to run out or something like that. Okay, so let's put that product in front of her where she's shopping for it. And we call that our go-to-her strategy. So we expanded into brick-and-mortar retail throughout the world. And we were really deliberate with the type of retailers that we chose. It wasn't just about driving volume. It was about putting the right product in the right place at the right time for the customer. Mm. Um, accepting that growth <laughs> goes like this, squiggling my fingers up and down if you're only listening to the audio it's um can i can i jump in and yeah. touch on that because i feel like um there's a massive point there that and you mentioned it not trying to uh, was it square through circle hole or yeah. the other way around <laughs> Either way, it's bad. um but the go to her strategy because i feel like that was that like i look back at that and I, look, I think about it now and i go that's amazing because most companies think let's just get more traffic let's expand our product range we'll sell it in we'll go through the same channel it's going to work we're going to do this right but you guys actually go no 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 like and and i'd be interested to hear did you try that at the start and then you found it didn't work or was it just simply hey like we're going to go we're going to think a little bit deeper here and actually go well if we're going to expand we we you know we we have to get the right marketing channel or the or you know get the product in the right area because i feel like that's something that will be really helpful for someone who probably has a product right now. They might maybe thinking about their second or third or expanding. It was a combination of we were already thinking about it because, you know, I think a key to a healthy business is decentralising risk. So if you've got all of your sales coming from a single channel, mm-hmm. what happens if something goes wrong there? You're up a very bad creek. Yep. Then... Um, we were predominantly marketing, marketing through Instagram and we're using a lot of, you know, basic performance marketing to attract our customer to frankbody.com and we went through the huge algorithm change that everybody experienced mm. and it changed our business fundamentally. We went from extremely affordable marketing through that channel to extremely, you know, extremely expensive and uh, we found the targeting a lot more difficult Um and working with influencers became a lot more expensive. Basically, all of the cogs that had been driving our marketing machine now <laughs> were getting stuck. And so we had to completely rethink the way that we introduced our brand to people and, you know, look at how we could potentially be operating in a different way that wasn't so much like pushing shit uphill, which mm. is what it felt like to be in performance marketing at the time. Um, so we, we always find that it's not necessarily that it's full steam ahead with every channel. You, there's kind of that, you know, one channel starts to creep ahead. It's very much driven by macro factors in the world and that will start to pull back and the other one takes place. You know, for the last two years, we saw all of our dot-coms absolutely boom and we were, we'd just gone into so many huge retail settings that were closed for the better part of two years mm. and that completely deaccelerated those channels and now the world's opened up again so we see dot-com pulling back and our retail partners like Alter and target in the u.s driving forward and 
there's such a big element of managing expectations, especially at a, at a board level, if you get to that point where you're reporting down year on year, but then the commentary around that is so important because, mm. well, of course, stock comes down because all the shops have opened up again and people want, people want to go out into the real world and spend their money on that. So looking at growth is such it's just I find it so interesting and so complex because it's so layered and you can't control the outcome all you can do is pull a couple of levers and see what the result is how much do you think having the right people on the bus then plays a factor in all of that right because you guys obviously from just the language you're using a player you really care about that and having you know like firstly at Willow and Blake but I'm assuming it's the same at, at Frank um going you know, we're going to go through these kind of algorithm changes or, you know, pandemics and, and there's a lot of that stuff happening, but you guys are obviously still progressing forward and, and think very deeply around those layers. Obviously, a big part of that is getting the right people on the bus. These, you know, I'm assuming for you guys, it's like deep thinkers, creative, these kind of people. How much do you think that plays a, a, a role in your, in, or has played a role in your, your ability to kind of get to where you are right now? A huge role, and I shouldn't have overlooked that before. Our, you know, we started with a couple of co-founders who had to be jack of all trades, and we did everything because that's what you do when you start a business. You mm. don't really have money a lot of the time to employ people, so you just get everything done yourself. Um, and then you slowly start to hire people who are better at doing those things than you. We're in a very fortunate position now, 10 years later, where we've got a great heads of department structure who are amazing leaders and also extremely high performers, which is, you know, the ultimate combination to find. But I, um, I was listening to something the other day that my husband showed me. It was a Simon Sinek video and he was talking about... He's the man, isn't I mean, he? everyone loves Simon Sinek. <laughs> I, I'm a bit... Yeah pick and choose when I like to listen to what he has to say. But this I found really interesting because he was talking about the way that they were choosing, um, you know, people for extreme, um, I'm trying to remember what section of the army it was, I can't remember, but basically like death missions. Oh, yeah. How they're going on them and how do you choose who's going to be on those missions with you and who's going to lead them. And he was looking at performance and trust on a chart and how you'd always choose the person who's, got a lot of trust and might be a lower performer and they're the people that you're going to build a really great team with so it's not always about choosing the best of the best when it comes to skills but choosing people that are always going to be there in the trenches with the rest of the team who are very much about seeing other people flourish and succeed and there's no competitiveness it'd be really easy in a business like ours where you've got retail sales and dot-com sales for there to be so much competitive tension there but we've spent a lot of time cultivating a you know, approach that is very much about a rising tide lifts all boats and everyone succeeds together. And so they're sharing yeah. their knowledge and their wins and they are all in it together no matter what part of the business that they work for. And it's taken us a long time to get there. Oh, of course. It's it's such a process, I, I would imagine. Um, it's really interesting you say that. So I don't know if you've read the book Good to Great, Jim Collins. I've read bits and pieces of it, yeah. yeah. So one of the principles in that is first who, then what. Um, and that was obviously good to great is about companies that obviously there's companies out there that become good, but what makes the great companies great is he kind of penciled it down to five factors and, and the first the first one is first who, then what. So get the right people on the bus and then you end up together figuring out how you get the bus to where it needs to go. Um, 
and that kind of factors into what you're just saying then you know i read that book is something i read once a year and i I love it um but yeah that definitely resonates um with what you were just saying just then it's so it's so important you need to create a culture where the people that you then put on the bus are allowed to tell you where to drive if we're going to go with this Mm -hmm. analogy because there's a lot of business leaders that don't want to hear when they're doing something wrong and i hope that we've created a workplace where, well, I mean, I see it all the time. We sit in our heads of department meeting with the founders and our senior leadership and we laugh because they'll call us out on things that we're doing wrong all the time or we're holding up projects. And it's, yes, there's hierarchy. There has to be hierarchy for the business to work properly, but there's also very little ego. Um, so I'm a big believer in just owning when you're stuffing things up. Like if I'm holding up a project, I'm going to own that and put my hand up and say I'm the reason that this hasn't hit its deadline and give my staff the ability to say that as well rather than creating this workplace where things have to happen in secret by the water cooler yeah it's so the genius with a thousand helpers like it's kind of like you don't want to build your business that way um because that's always the roadblock that's always the thing that stops you no matter where you're getting to if 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 the if the company relies on a on a I guess a centralized uh, a person or, or kind of um, team or whatever it is, it's always going to be the, the thing that is this, that's always going to create the ceiling. So I think it does truly talk to, to that as well. And, and even just something, you know, working with my partner has really showed me that because it's good. Like I'm just like, you know, she, obviously she's not afraid to tell me what, what <laughs> when, I'm in, when I'm not, when I'm holding things up. But, um, you know, I think having a team there that, where everybody feels comfortable enough, so that's a culture thing. But, but also, you know, people that um, are willing to drive the bus. I think that's really important. And it, again, it kind of comes back to that hiring process of getting the right people first. Yeah. So, cool. This is a bit of a different question, but I'm really interested. This is a personal one for me. So I, right. I thought about this, and I'm like, okay, if I want, it, this is what I want to know um, that I think will, will create a lot of value too. If you were to start a or be launch, if you were go, going to launch a product now, what's the process you go through? So let's say brand, blank canvas, brand new product. What's the process that you go through of, you know, or kind of getting that product to a successful launch? Brand new product or brand new brand? Um, I think let's go with product because um, more so from that kind of branding side though or, or even like the... Oh, actually. Yeah, because it's really different because yeah. we launch new products all the time at Frank and so I'd tell you the way I do that. But if I was starting a new Let's brand, do brand. Let's do brand. I think that'll get us the better answer. Hard one. Yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> if I was launching a new brand, the number one thing I would not do is what I did with Frank Body. And, uh, no. Yeah, well, because it wouldn't work. And because it's a different market 10 years later and I have yep. so many clients and friends and, you know, entrepreneurs that ask me questions and they try to emulate what they've seen with other brands it's never going to work wrong place wrong time different place different time um it doesn't need to be complicated i think launching a brand or a product if you you just need to look at how you fit into the cultural zeitgeist what is going on right now what is a trend right now or a need right Mm. now that i can be tapping into and creating a product that solves that need and a content strategy that talks about it. It might feel easy to me because it's what I do every single day and if it's not what you do, then work with experts to help you look at how you bring that to life. Mm. 
but that's what I would be doing. So I wouldn't be trying to launch a brand on Instagram. It's done, dead, finished a couple of Yeah, and that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree, I agree, but um, keep going. Sorry, sorry. No, no, I mean, it's really the crux of it. It's because like, there's no formula, right? I can't sit here and be like, I do X, Y, Z, because it's so dependent on what I'm launching to what consumer, in what industry, in what region. But I would be looking at the platform that's relevant now to the customer that I'm talking to or what's going to be relevant and it might be quiet for a while and then start to boom so and just don't expect instant success like people look at Frank and go oh my god it was overnight it wasn't overnight it was the culmination of my entire career and the entire career and knowledge of a couple of other people as well so it was many many years in the making even if then the product that we launched we were only working on for six or 12 months. It's never an overnight success, no, is it? I hate no. that term so much. Yeah, yeah. Not because it's, it sets people up for failure because yeah, they think that they're supposed to go from zero to 100 overnight and it's physically impossible. So work with experts where you can because it can be expensive, but spend your money on the right things and then just don't try and copy what somebody else has done. I really love what you said around cultural and, and trends. Um, I think that's the... That's what makes a great entrepreneur. You know, they know, they, they're able to read the play in a sense mm-hmm. and, and kind of keep an eye on the trends and what's culturally a fit. Um, definitely, like that's, you know, market dynamics always trump product and, and, you know, it's like a, it's like almost like a tsunami, right? Like you're never going to beat the market, you know, but if, yeah. you can, if you can learn to leverage it, you can, you know, like something I always say is you can have like a, uh, like you can have a great product, but if it's not culturally a fit, or you know, like it's the it's it's a dying market, it's not going to do as well as say, um, not a mediocre product because you've got to always have a good product and a great product, but like a product that's let's say more relevant will yeah. always do better. So I think that's that's how I think of it in terms of, uh, I guess, looking at something new. Like even with this, we were like, okay, what's do we think podcasting is going to be around for a long time? You know, and it's almost like that new form of owned media. Yeah. We think there's massive opportunity there. And that's why it was like, cool, this is where we go. We put ourselves in there. We get the right team in there and we just figure it out. But if we're in the right market and, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be culturally relevant for the next 10 years, we're in. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's awesome. Um, cool. So let's talk about branding now and, and building a brand. What, what do you see that's working? Like, cause you, you, you said it perfectly before. It's like what worked 10 years ago is not going to work now. So, you know, tapping into your marvelous business mind, what, what do you think is working now? You know, and, and what, you know, how has it changed? How's it changing currently? Um, oh, okay. Big question. Big question. Like broad <laughs> answer too. I'm trying to work out how to streamline this. Um, I see a couple of different trends going on at the moment. Um, Consumers are very, they're a lot more conscious and a lot more expecting of brands now than they were even five years ago. So there's things that were once nice to have that are just absolute mandatories now. We Mm. need to have an inclusivity policy. We need to have a sustainability policy. They're not pillars to build your brand on anymore that's just basic stuff that everybody needs to be doing so how do you the biggest question we ask is how do you then stand out when the things that once made you stand out are now just 
you know, par for the course and mm. everybody needs to be doing them. That's the question that we're constantly trying to answer for our clients. Um, so if that was something that you built a brand on, looking at how you continue to evolve and continue to grow is really, really key. And it's been a big part of us, our journey at Frank. You know, we built a brand that was natural and mm. sustainable and now... That's and inclusive. That's everybody. It's yeah. just and which is fantastic because you obviously want to be part of the you know the cohort that leads that change and it's and it's awesome to see. But now everyone looks like us. So how do we stand out and what do we? That's our constant challenge. What do we do next? That is core to who we are as a brand. And these are the questions everybody should be asking. But that's going to separate us from what everybody else is doing. So that's probably the biggest question I think brands need to be answering and that's how you, you build something that people can love. It's so true, right? Like relevance and differentiation are just like the two key pillars and then um, can we – like uh, it's almost like, okay, is what's, what's relevant and what's going to be relevant over the next 10 years, um, uh, is it differentiated? You know, is it going to make us stand out and then can we sustain this? Yeah. You know, like – is this, is this strategy actually sustainable long-term or even, you know, over the next, say, two years because it does change really quickly. But I definitely think that's something that I pay attention to, I guess. Like, in my mind, I'm like, they're kind of like the three, I guess, hurdles or three kind of things that I look at and I'm like, we've got to, you know, if this is the strategy we're going to go with. It has to jump these three hurdles. Yeah. So um, I think that was very lovely put. Um, so I guess... How are you, like, uh, the last thing we want to touch on before we go to quick fire is how are you guys thinking about expansion from here on in? Like, because, you know, I don't take you as someone who is looking to stop anytime soon and you obviously, you know, uh, are going to keep moving forward. So how are you guys looking to expand and, and what do you think's next and, and how are you guys planning, to, not in detail, but, like, how are you guys looking at the future for, for Frank? It's no, it's a great question. I like that. Um, at... At Frank, we've got two core parts of our business, which is our dot-com and retail, and they both need to continue to grow for scale to be happening. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's an element of looking at what we can be doing within the regions that we already exist in. Do we go into new retail settings with a really curated range of products, for example? Is pharmacy or supermarket ever going to be right for us as a brand? Do we be expanding into new regions that we're not playing in, and do we bring on experts to be leading that for us instead of trying to hold everything within our within our team or our offices here in Australia and the US and the UK. So they're the kind of questions we're always asking ourselves. I, None of us have any aspiration to be a 100 skew brand and I don't think newness is the way to sustain growth. It gives you spikes but really great brands continue to be really great brands because people are always buying into the core SKUs and so that's a huge focus for mm. us. How do we continue to grow the stuff that's been you know, part of the, the range for many, many years already and how do we keep people excited about that rather than just adding complexity and costs because it's really expensive to launch a new product. Mm -hmm. So if that becomes how you, you know, as a brand, you're growing, it's really dangerous territory to be in you ask me anyway um you know the shiny carrot syndrome i think is a real thing so growth is not necessarily sexy oh, it's, it, it's very much going back to basics and looking at what's working and how we you know what our weak spots are so for example i'm taking us through a big focus on regulatory claims at the moment because we are really really 
really um, play by the rules when it comes to what we can and can't say about the product. And then we see competitors going through clinical trials that can say so much more than us. And I'm like, well, this is a gap. How can I ever compete against a product that can say explicitly, I will do X, and then I have to say, maybe I will do X, Y, Z, but I can't really commit to anything because I haven't gone through a clinical trial. There's a huge like there's a huge discrepancy in what we can achieve when we look at our competitors in such a blank way. So we're always looking for the weak spots within the business and how we can turn them into strengths in order to grow. Mm. So that's kind of what we're doing. It's really cool. <laughs> I, I mean, it's good. I think it uh, again the insight into looking at how you guys grow is is really fascinating in a sense because like um, I think. From what I can see, you guys are really good at pattern recognition and going and, and really deep analysis internal and, and looking internally to see where that next opportunity is. So I think that's a great lesson for all the founders at home. Thanks. Yeah, I, I um, it's so different in every level of the business too. You know, you have your, your team who are mostly focused on making what is working work even harder and then it becomes your job as a founder or a senior leader yeah. to find the white space and give them their next project to be working on. And you're not always the one that gets to, you know, have the glory at the end of the day, but you, you're creating that opportunity for your team to run with. Yeah, that's such a good point um, that I'd love for you to just maybe touch on a little bit further around mm-hmm. team because, like, the different roles and, and, I guess, structure. Like, because obviously, and you just mentioned it then, but, like, I always think about, Whenever you're obviously bringing something new into your business, whether it's a product or it's a marketing campaign or whatever it is, not necessarily a campaign, but like you're always looking to sustain whatever is working, right? So you want to bring something in and then you want to sustain that. And almost your role as like the founder or the visionary is to go out um, and even leadership at times is to go out and, and okay, what's that next kind of opportunity that we want to kind of go? And then that, again moves into that sustainability part like is that how you guys look at it from a from I guess a growth standpoint very much so so all the founders now play a c-suite role and we'll manage our departments with our head of department as our two IC and there's an element of you know day-to-day maintenance of the business that's part and parcel of running it but our job at the end of the day for myself as CMO is to be looking at where are their sales and marketing opportunities for us that we are currently not playing in and what can I be spending my day learning about today that I can then help inform my team on which then grows into an entire project which hopefully has xyz benefits for us yeah and Um, they go away and execute and get it done yeah you're not necessarily the executor anymore sometimes I'll try and do things to keep it off their plate I don't always like to be that leader that's just do this handballing stuff to (laughs) them but you you want to you, you need to find that balance of how much do you do to then be able to hand something over to your team and set them up for success and then they really kind of um, own that project through yeah. the execution phase. Yeah, amazing. Awesome. Um, quick fire. We are ready to rock and roll. Um, so as, as we mentioned before, it's um, these questions are quite broad. So it's more like you just – it's you be you, right, answer I'm how you want to – everyone gets scared. <laughs> you, you will love it. Um, okay, so one piece of advice for your younger self. I always give myself the same piece of advice. It came from my grandpa. You are worth whatever price you put on yourself. Essentially, it means so many different things to me. It's not necessarily about monetary value. It's uh, 
your worth in so many different ways and to stand up for what you believe in and to, you know, fight for what you think is right and to make sure you are heard. And then if you don't do any of those things, you can't be frustrated later when the outcome wasn't what you wanted. If you want a certain outcome, you have to make it happen. That's so powerful. I don't have anything to add to that. that was, that's just, I think that's so important for everyone. Forget business, you know, just in general. Yeah. Relationships, everything, you know, it's just so, so pivotal. Um, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting a business? Um, you're going to work harder now than you ever will in your life. And you're going to give up a lot to be able to do it. But if you're having those days where you're wondering whether it's worth it or not, I just I promise you that it is. And you're only ever going to regret the things that you didn't do. So just kind of keep pushing and ask questions. There are no dumb questions. I love when people ask for advice from me or I ask them for advice because the moment you think that you know everything is when you're going to fail. Mm. Mm. Amen. <laughs> That's so true. Okay, so what advice would do you have for women that are currently in business, specifically women? Um, you're probably going to have to say things a hundred times for people to hear you and that's okay. Or you'll give an idea and people will not acknowledge it and then a week later a man will say the same idea and they'll be like, that was a great idea, Bob. Um, I... I think we are in a really interesting time to be women in business because we are one of the first generations to be able to be in the positions that we're in, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. But we're also one of the first generations who are trying to have it all and it's incredibly difficult. There is no model for how you be a business owner or a successful person even if you're not the founder and how you manage your personal life and how you manage motherhood there is no handbook for that and no one has really done it before our generation. And we are the 24-7 generation and it is exhausting. Um, so there's so much pressure on women today, more so than I think there ever has been. It's always been different types of pressure, but now we are the have-it-all generation. <laughs> we have it all plus exhaustion. So it's not necessarily a piece of advice, it's more just acknowledgement that this is where we are right now, um, but I prefer this than the alternative. So what can men do for women in business? Because this is like, that's something I really care about. My partner, yeah. she's with me in this and on a personal level, but for our audience as well, like what can men do for women in business? Like what, because we, we are going through change at the moment and it's great and we're not anywhere near where we need to be, you know, with equality and, and equal opportunity and these kind of things. But what can men do for women in business generally? Because um, I'll just preface that because no. I feel like we don't necessarily, like, you know, it's we, we are different, you know, we are different in the way we think, right? Yeah, yeah. So I it's more like how can we start to create, like what, what do we need to become aware of? Um, all right, I'm going to answer this really honestly. And no, I, do please it. Please don't do take it. offense to this. Not at all. Like, this is why I'm asking the question because I really care about it. The answer to the question is to answer that question yourself. So, yeah, I'm good. a big believer in the mental load is a real thing and a lot of how we're trying to progress women now is by 
women solving that problem. And I don't want to solve the problem for you. And I know your intentions are completely pure and yeah. my husband asks me the same question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fucking solve it yourself, Dan. <laughs> um, I think it's it's true of any of us in a position of power. I am still then a very privileged white person. So then I have the, I'm in the position where I need to be educating myself about what other people who, you know, are other minorities or, you know, different race to me, differently abled, they don't have the same privileges that I do and it's a really awful reality of the world. Mm-hmm. So everyone, not everyone, but a lot of us have our own privilege that we need to understand and educate ourselves on and then learn how we play a role in the cycle that continues to be perpetuated and change it rather than sort of asking the question. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's of course, education of course. and, um, you know, just listening I think is really good. So yeah. I'm, in one hand I'm saying don't ask the question but on the other hand you need to ask the question to hear about people's experiences to then take away and learn something from it. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's the awareness piece, right? Like, if I can continue, personally, not for anyone else, this is me, is, like, everything. Like, one thing that I, like, there's a big realisation for me, probably in the last two and a half years, you mentioned it, is that everybody starts from different positions. And the fact that we, we've we've come through, like, this hard work society, that it's like, we look at where people are, and we don't necessarily, necessarily take into where they started from, and then we expect that everybody should be able to do this thing. Yeah. It's a capitalistic society that kind of promotes that. Um, but I think for me, it's like creating awareness for myself and getting the different perspectives almost helps me know where to look for education or from an education point. And, and then I can start to change my belief system around certain things because my actions come and the way I talk to people and my the way I make decisions comes from my belief system. So for me, it's just like... I love to hear the perspective and, and for our audience, I just think it's so important that the conversation just is being had, you know what I mean? Like really important to, for people to understand this, it actually exists, you know, and, and it's, it's, if you think it doesn't, that's bullshit. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just bullshit. So yeah. that's the reason I asked that question is because I've been very lucky to interview some amazing women who have done it and are doing it. Uh, and I also know that there's women out there that aren't doing it mm-hmm. and it's probably because of this bullshit that we talk about. So, um, yeah, that's the reason I ask it and I think that's something I try to do continuously is educate myself. I've made mistakes in the past, definitely not saying I'm perfect, but I think the key is to learn, educate yourself so you can – you mentioned it. Like, well, what impact do you have moving forward? Yeah, and – Acknowledging our bias for all of us, not necessarily in the situation where you as a man and myself as a woman, just all of us have bias that Mm. we, you know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we bring that into the way that we interact with people in every aspect of our lives. And if we don't do work to acknowledge that, then, you know... What are we even doing here? The (laughs) the structures of society as we know it just continue and the shit things that we don't want to live with anymore just continue. So, Yeah. um, yeah, I education and awareness is just key to being able to solve most of the world's problems if only it was that simple yeah <laughs> yeah 100% um what's the most important trait that a founder must have for success just being willing to know when you're wrong and to acknowledge what you don't know um if you think you know everything you will fail and i i said that before and 
if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're going to fail. You need to be willing to listen to the people that you employ and the people that you meet and learn from them. Mm. And it's the number one key to success. Amazing. Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> um, last one. So we mentioned before the ultimate diary for a founder. Do you use a diary? Uh, in terms of like scheduling? Just in general, like, you know, do you use a diary for yourself? It could be scheduling. I know some people like to journal. Is there, is there, you know, is there stuff that you do? I actually don't take the time to write things down anymore. I've gone in and out of phases a lot. Yeah, so um, do I, yeah. I, I take the time to think about things. Um, a good physical solution would actually be very helpful. Um, that I live and breathe by my Google calendar, so that's my diary <laughs> Have you seen days. mine? Have you seen mine? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. That's literally my life. Yeah, people would have a nervous breakdown. Family events, my everything. Calendar. Yeah, you can see everything I'm doing if you subscribe <laughs> to my calendar. 100%. Uh, it's kind of creepy, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think to, to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to have a really good way to structure your life. There needs to be an element that gives you flexibility because you need to be able to jump on things as you want to. Mm. But structure is really key to help keeping you focused. And when you don't have a boss, there's no one there to create that structure for you. So you need a system that does that. And for a lot of people, that means scheduling out their day, writing down their to-do lists, and then spending time reflecting on what it is that they did or didn't achieve mm. so I asked myself a lot of questions like where were you today why didn't you get this done where were you this week how did you spend your time where were you this month your goal was to get here and you spent all of it doing this other thing how did you let that happen mm. these are, you know these are the types of things that I ask myself um and every founder or it doesn't even need to be a founder yeah, yeah, yeah. anyone takes anyone. their work seriously and wants to do great things should be asking themselves those questions Amazing, mm. definitely. We're just trying to collect as much as we can right now. Yeah. Um, that's it for today. I want to say a massive thank you to you. That was, um, I think, probably the most insightful conversation, if not, uh, you know, in the top three that I've had. So a lot of really great lessons there, um, not even just from a business perspective, just in general. Um, and I know you're busy, so I, and I know you're a, you're a mother, uh, so I, I do really appreciate your time and um, I know everybody would have enjoyed it. Thank you. That's so lovely. Um, it's always so – I find it overwhelming sometimes trying to survive, you know, 15 years' worth of experience of into a couple of minutes' worth of an answer. So sorry sometimes I sound like a space cadet. It's just me trying to pull all of the thoughts and the experience down from the ether into an actual verbal answer. But it's really, really lovely getting to talk about this stuff and to take a moment to stop and reflect on everything that we've done and the team have done, all the different people that have been part of the story along the way. Um, so hopefully something that I said was helpful to someone. No, it was great. It was honestly great. Thank you. Uh, to John, thanks for putting this together, my man. Um, and to our listeners, again, I say this every week, but you guys are helping us do this and, and playing a big role in our ability to talk to lovely people like Jess and, and kind of um, share their journey and their story. So a massive thank you to you guys. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week. Whoa, whoa.